0: Would you stand with me as we read? I want to say first... um, (laughs) You'll pardon me if my tears short out this mic today. (laughs) We had this sermon series outlined for months. And God knew that this would be the text that we would be in this morning. And you'll pardon me if I read this a little bit slowly today. John 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and he laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, And whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. Father, we need you. Comforter, we need you. We can't walk through this season without you. And we know that you're here with us. Through the very proclamation of your word, you are present with us, but also through the indwelling Holy Spirit, you are with us. And so Lord, as we examine a difficult passage of Scripture this morning, we pray that you, Holy Spirit, would search our hearts and see if there is any impure way in us. Lead us in the way everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As I get into this a little bit, I'll stop the the weepiness. Um, Where we are in Scripture... As I alluded to a moment ago, God has overseen. We had no idea this would be the season that we would be in when we reached this passage. But God knew. God was not surprised. And our text today marks the second half of John's gospel. And we'll remember that John set forth a purpose statement In his gospel, that you would believe that Jesus is who he says he is. We're entering in our timeline now to the final hours before Jesus' crucifixion. Something that that should awe us is Christ's patience with his disciples. It says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That hasn't changed. That night wasn't the end. That's not what John was saying. He wasn't saying Jesus loved them three and a half years, and now this is the end, and he loved them up until that point. He loves his own still today, perfectly. Jesus knew that Peter was hours away from denying him. And yet he displays such grace and mercy and compassion in the face of Peter's weakness. That's good news for us, brothers and sisters. If Jesus loved us on the basis of our strength, we would have been damned before we woke up today. But his love for us is based on his faithfulness. This morning we got up and we made our coffee and we were sitting on the couch and Amy looks out the window and she goes, look at that sunrise. It's a reminder of God's faithfulness. Christ's love for sinners is astounding. He loved us while we were still sinners, while we were dead in trespasses and sins. He loved us when we couldn't do anything, when we wouldn't do anything but rebel against him. This is the love of Jesus for you, brothers and sisters. He didn't wait until we cleaned up our act. There's nothing in all of creation like his love, which came into his creation and took on human flesh and bore our sins and died for us. Our minds can't comprehend this kind of love because there's nothing like it in all of creation. But his love for the believer is equally astounding. Not just his love for the sinner, but his love for the believer. He bears with us in our sanctification process. From the day we are justified until the day we are glorified in resurrection, we battle with the sin nature we inherited from Adam. And the entire time, Jesus is right there with us in the perfecting process loving us perfectly. He would be just to cut us off every time you fail. But instead, he never casts out those who come to him in faith. No debt of sin can ever bankrupt God's account of grace. No amount of sin can ever bankrupt God's account of grace. His love is beyond finding out. Don't think for a second that when you fail and sin, that Christ will cast you off. Look at the way he shows his loving kindness and patience to Peter. The majority of what I'll be sharing with you this morning uh, is borrowed and simply updated from Uh, a hero of the faith, Bishop J.C. Ryle, and he says this, Jesus will never reject us because of our feeble service and weak performance. Those whom he receives, he always keeps. Those whom he loves at first, he loves at last. In verse 2 of our text, we're reminded of the wickedness in the hearts of some of those who claim to follow Jesus. We read that the devil had put it into Judas's heart to betray Jesus. Judas, who had been selected by Jesus. Think about this for a moment. I believe and hold fiercely to the sovereignty of God. God knew that Judas would betray him. And yet, Jesus selected him as one of his closest confidants he was the treasurer of this group he walked with jesus for three and a half years he saw the loving kindness of our lord he saw him performing miracles and wonderful signs he was one of those who were sent out by jesus in pairs to preach the gospel judas no doubt would have actually performed some miracles himself and yet, here we see his ultimate decision to betray Jesus. In our family vehicle, many of yours will do the same. When you put it in reverse, we have a, a display that pops up on the console, and there's a, a rear-view camera. And as we get closer to an item, as we're reversing, it beeps. It starts beeping slowly, and as we get closer to an item, it beeps faster and faster to say, you're getting close. That's what Judas is here in this text. He's a backup alarm to us to remind us that were it not for the grace of God, there go I. Except when we read this account, it doesn't beep slowly and then faster. It starts out beeping very fast and beeping that sounds something like this. There are those who say they're Christians that aren't. Don't think it's someone else. Ask the Holy Spirit to examine your heart. I'm afraid that there are those who think because they've had the privilege of being raised in a Christian home or because they hold some position in the church that they must certainly be saved. But to quote J.C. Ryle again, privileges alone without grace save nobody and will only make hell deeper. I've said it from this pulpit before. Mere mental assent to what Jesus said is useless apart from real life change. If there were those who made false professions, not only in Jesus' day, but in Jesus' inner circle, we shouldn't be shocked when we see the same today. But counterfeits can't exist unless there's a genuine article somewhere. We saw on the news this week um, that there are knockoff products being sold. Like the Yeti tumblers, you know. And it's not just the, yeah, you got one right here. (laughs) And it's not just the ones that look like it and function like a Yeti. They're actually ones that say Yeti on it. You don't have one of those, do you? A knockoff that says Yeti? Okay. Well, the reason it was in the news is because there's these knockoffs that actually say Yeti on it, but they have high, dangerous levels of lead in them. How can a mug that, and Ozark Trail's fine, that one's good. But how can a product with dangerous levels of lead in it become a successful sale? Because there's a real one out there. And people want the real deal. Our faith may be weak. But it is not the strength of our faith. But the object of our faith which saves us. Hear me for a moment. A weak but Genuine faith is more to be desired than a false profession that seems strong. I'm going to say that again. A weak but genuine faith is more to be desired than a false profession of faith that seems strong. I'd rather have a real Yeti than one that looks like the real deal but is dangerous. I want to reread the middle portion of our text where it says in verse 6, He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And then in stereotypically Peter fashion, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I, then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. So in these verses we read of Jesus washing his disciples' feet the night before he was crucified. This is the only gospel account that records this particular event. Why? I can't understand. The Holy Spirit was sovereign in that perhaps if it were in all four of the gospels we wouldn't give it such special attention but throughout christian history this and the following chapters have been a special source of encouragement for believers now i imagine most of us when we put on our shoes at home this morning we we walked outdoors to our vehicle or maybe some of us through a garage and we got in the vehicle and we drove here and we spent several seconds outdoors before we were inside. Our shoes are probably not very much more dusty than they were when we put them on this morning. Maybe they're less dusty by now. But in this first century Jewish context, where they walked around in sandals on dirt roads, their feet were filthy, constantly. And it was a standard practice that when you came to someone's home for dinner, they would have a servant of theirs wash your feet. But there's something important to note about their culture, that it couldn't just be any servant. It was such degrading and menial service that only a Gentile servant could wash someone's feet. Not even a Jewish servant could wash someone's feet. It was considered that low. And yet here we see Jesus, the creator of the universe, stooping to wash his disciples' feet. The fact that Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us would wash anyone's feet, should surprise us. But what Jesus goes on to explain to his disciples is equally fascinating. One of the first things that should jump out at us as we read this is, as I mentioned, Peter's hasty response, just as quickly as he refused to allow Jesus to wash his feet, As soon as Jesus responds, he, he flips and goes the other way and says, not just my feet, but my hands and my head also. But at neither point does Peter seem to grasp the significance and the meaning of what Jesus is doing and teaching. He sees, but he doesn't understand. Have you been there? We see what God's doing and we don't understand it. And then he explains a little bit through his word. And we think we understand, but we still don't understand. We, like Peter, may have genuine faith and Christian love while remaining, at least for a time, ignorant of the nature and character of God. Just because someone doesn't have all their theological I's and T's dotted and crossed doesn't mean that we can write them off as though they were not truly Christians. It doesn't matter how much you know if your heart is selfish and conceited. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, love builds up but knowledge puffs up. They look the same, they're up, but am I built up or am I puffed up? Which has more substance a full head or a full heart. As descendants of Adam, we have inherited a corrupt sin nature. It's just who we are by nature. And it affects every part of us, including our minds. So even while our hearts are being changed, we will wrestle with damaged heads and we won't always be able to understand what Jesus is doing. It humbles us and it usually takes a lifelong Of learning for it to take root. But every day the Lord gives us on earth, the more we'll come to thank Him for the fact that we, like Peter, may fail and make hasty decisions and yet have a heart that has truly been made alive together with Christ. Don't think for a moment that just because you can't wrap your mind around what God is doing or who He is fully, that you're not in Christ. Even in the easiest of seasons, of which we are not currently in at the moment, we will find it difficult to understand the way God works. The question of why God does this or that thing most days confuses us the way it confused Peter when the creator of the universe humbled himself to wash his disciples' feet. Peter couldn't wrap his head around what Jesus was doing that night, But there would come a day when Jesus' intentions became clear to Peter. Much later. So with us, there will come a day when every trial will be made clear to us when we stand face to face with Jesus. Our text today is also unique in that Jesus gives us an undeniably and unequivocally clear direction. Do as I have done to you. Does this mean that we're to literally wash one another's feet? I don't think so. Now, there are traditions, Christian traditions, who take that command literally, and I think that's fine. I think that's a good thing. I think they learn a lot from it. I think they honor Christ in doing it. But I don't think that we're commanded to literally wash one another's feet. But if we are not spiritually serving one another, even if we are not practically serving one another in something comparable to feet washing then we have ignored, or worse, disobeyed Christ's command. I think Jesus is saying much, something much deeper than just wash one another's literal feet. He's modeling for us humility. If the commander of angel armies didn't consider the work of a servant to be too lowly for him, there is nothing that disciples of Christ should think too low for them. 1 Peter 5.5 5 says, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Pride is at the core of all sin. It was what cast Lucifer from the presence of Yahweh. It was what crept into the heart of our first parents and separated their fellowship from their creator. But on the flip side, there is no virtue so lovely as Humility. Can you imagine the state of the church if we were more mindful about our inherent pridefulness in Adam and our inherent humility in Christ? If we gave that more thought, what would the church look like? If we began to see a revival of humility, what would Grace Family Fellowship look like if it were filled to the gills with true humility? I don't think there's anything more repulsive to God than someone who claims to be a Christian and yet is righteous, self-righteous, conceited, and puffed up. That's dangerous levels of lead, brothers and sisters. And if you have someone else in mind right now, if you're picturing someone else as I described pride, plead with the Holy Spirit to take your eyes off of them and fix them on yourself. Genuine humility cannot exist apart from love. And following Christ's example, we should love one another so deeply that we're always thinking of ways in which we can make one another happy in Christ. If we're focused on making one another happy in Christ, we won't have time to focus on making ourselves happy, but that's okay. Because in that context, someone else has been tasked with that. And it's between them and the Lord if they fail at that responsibility. All last month, we sang Psalm 16. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. What does fullness indicate for us? If our heart is filled with the joy of the Lord, there's not room for anything else. But if we're only half full, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, and we allow other things to creep in, eventually that joy spills out. As rare as it is to find someone who is truly and obviously concerned and committed to the the happiness of others, when you find someone who fits that description, you can be sure that you found someone who is after God's heart. For me, it's easy to find someone who loves studying the deep things of God and say, that must be a godly person. That's not so, brothers. There are those who love to know information about God who have not been truly transformed Even when the world can't begin to understand true and good and sound biblical doctrines, the graces of God, which they can understand, are humility and love. Go out on the street today and try to explain the doctrine of the atonement to an unbeliever. It doesn't make sense to the unbelieving heart. But go out on the street today and show love and humility and they'll understand that. You don't need to be wealthy or smart. To be humble and loving. But we do have to depend on the Holy Spirit for that. Excuse me. If we are to make our calling and election sure, as Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1, then we will bear the markers of humility and love. This is an intensely timely reminder for us today. And I want to draw out three spiritual lessons from this first um, From this section of our text. One, all of us need to be washed by Christ. Two, those who are washed by Christ need to be cleansed daily by the Word. And three, even among Jesus' closest disciples, not all were washed of their sins. On that first point, Jesus tells Peter that if he doesn't wash him, he has no part with him. You can't wash yourself. You've got to let me do it for you, Jesus speaking, not me. This is the difference between every man-made religion in the world and the Christian message. You can't do better enough. You can't try hard enough to make yourself right with God. You can't wash yourself, Peter. If you don't let me wash you, you have no part with me. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6.11 that we must be washed sanctified, and justified in the name of Jesus by the Spirit of God. On that second point, those who are washed by Christ need to be daily cleansed by the Word. Even after we've been made clean by the work of Christ, we need to be constantly being cleansed by the water of the Word. There's not a day goes by that we're not affected by the world. If you're walking on a dirt path, your feet are getting dirty. If you're living, you need to daily be washed by the water of the Word or our feet will become unrecognizable as feet. They'll be so caked in dirt and mud that they won't even be identifiable. May that never be said of our faith. May we never go so long without being washed by the water of the word that we become unrecognizable as Christians. And on the third point, we see in our text Jesus telling Peter that not every one of you are clean. And this is A very difficult statement for us to deal with today. I've alluded to this a couple of times, that on a day like today, it's terrifyingly easy for us to be picturing someone else in our mind as we hear this word from God, rather than saying, search me, Lord, and see if there's any unclean way in me. Every one of us needs to pause and think seriously about why we're sitting here in these chairs today when there are others who have made a profession of faith who are no longer in fellowship with Christ or his church. So why? The restraining grace of God. The moment he lifts his hand of grace from you, you would immediately be plunged into the throes of selfishness and sin. So when you see a brother fall into sin, plead with the Holy Spirit that you wouldn't be puffed up with pride If you feel even an iota of vindication because of someone else's sin, fall to your knees and weep in repentance because at that moment, we are no better than Judas. We're given Jesus' words here, Jesus' words about Judas as a reminder that if not even all of his 12 inner circle were cleansed by Jesus, then we must be on our guard. In verses 16 through 20, and I'll read them again just to refresh our memories, Jesus says this Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger, which is where we get the word apostle, greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Before moving on, I want to point to one of the things Jesus says, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. He is quoting for us there from Psalm 41. David recorded in Psalm 41 one of the worst betrayals he had ever experienced when Absalom sought to usurp his throne. And commenters believe that the friend who ate David's bread was not his son Absalom, but his dear friend Ahithophel. Jesus, being very familiar with this account of his ancestor, tells his disciples One of you is going to betray me, but this was prophesied long ago. Ahithophel rebelling and betraying David was a prophecy. And it was fulfilled in Judas betraying Jesus. But I want to point us to this. As Christ's followers, we cannot be too proud to do anything that he has done. Namely, serving a servant is not greater than his master, nor is an apostolos or messenger greater than the one who sent him. Jesus was saying this because he knew that Judas was about to betray him and Peter was about to deny him, both of which are foretold in this very same chapter by Jesus. Not only this, but we see elsewhere in the Gospels that these disciples, all of them, expected the Messiah to come bearing a sword and not a towel and a wash basin. They anticipated a king and not a servant. They couldn't believe that their long-awaited rescuer would come as a humble babe born in a manger. They couldn't believe that true greatness consisted in meekness and gentleness. This was why Jesus gave the word of warning to them. We are prone to ignore and disregard opportunities to serve that seem to us to be too menial or degrading. We want to leave it for someone else to do. We sing that lyric, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And we think of these enormous sins. It is just as ungodly for us to refuse to humble ourselves and serve one another the way Christ served his disciples, as it would be for us to fall into gross sexual immorality. The consequences in the immediate might look different. But the degree of need for a Savior is just the same. A Christian should never utter or even think the words, that's not in my job description. In a church our size, there should be no shortage of people desiring to do whatever work needs done for the ministry of the gospel to go forth. I say this in love. When we see a need in the church or in our surrounding community, we should remind ourselves not only of what Jesus says here, but what he did as an example. Maybe you say or think, well, they don't deserve my talents. They don't appreciate me. So I'm going to stop serving because I don't feel appreciated enough. Jesus washed Judas' feet, he didn't just wash John's feet. He didn't even just wash Peter's feet. He washed Judas' feet. Did Judas deserve that honor? No. So may we never say, I'm not going to serve because I don't feel appreciated enough. If we refuse to serve when we see a need, we betray a lack of humility and love. Jesus tells his disciples in verse 17 that if you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. Again, mere head knowledge doesn't do us a bit of good. James tells us, faith without works is dead. You'll never be really happy in Christ if you're content with just knowing information about God without doing something about it. James goes on in chapter 4 to say to him who knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. To think that just knowing the right information about God will save you is a form of Gnosticism. Are you familiar with Gnosticism? In the first century, there were those, and still to this day, who believed that they received special knowledge from God apart from his word. Well, you, you couldn't know what I know about God because he revealed it directly to me. Oh, and he didn't reveal it in Scripture? Then that's probably heresy thinking that just because we know the right information about God will save us is just a different form of Gnosticism. Because listen to this. Even the demons know and tremble. It doesn't matter how much you know, the demons will always know more about God than you will until glory. They know and tremble. Rather than knowing about God, may we in fact know God and be known by him. This isn't saying that knowledge is a bad thing. We should desire knowledge, right? But along with it, we should desire to be mobilized by the Holy Spirit to act upon what we know. There is our knowing, and then there is Christ's knowing. Christ knows his sheep perfectly. He knows whom he has chosen, and this is both a great comfort for the one who is truly in Christ and a terrifying blow for the one who makes a false profession. You might have the entire church deceived, but not Jesus. But Christ in our text today leaves us with this. Whoever receives the one I sinned receives me. Do you want the world to receive Jesus? He shows us how when we go in humility and love and humbly serve, when the world sees us and they know us by our love for one another. When we love one another, we're just Peter and John and the other disciples loving one another, and that's a good thing. And the world sees that and it makes an impact. But when we love the world, when we love those who do not love Jesus, humbly, and faithfully and in service, what do you think the likelihood of them receiving Jesus is at that point? It's a lot higher. What an encouragement. If they reject our love and humility, don't take it personally. Go on loving. Go on preaching the gospel of grace, which says, "Be washed by Jesus and live." We're going to conclude our time together today in prayer. The elders are going to join me here at the pulpit and pray for the families who have been affected by this sin and pray for our church family. So, elders, if you would come join me now, I just want to read us one last passage from God's Word, a familiar passage, Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or deceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was born in the form of God, I'm sorry, rather, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men.